Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. This podcast is for you if you have an insane drive to find the truth of things. It's not the good answers that we seek, but the good questions. I interview a range of different guests from many different fields, all with the intention to uncover the simple truths that are hidden in plain sight. Most people don't want to go there. I go there. My guests go there, and you benefit. Please let me know if you enjoy these episodes, and as always, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Well, welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Simone Collins. She operates a number of companies, invests in startups, co-hosts the podcast Based Camp with Malcolm Collins, and regularly lectures on the topics of management techniques and is also a best-selling author. Uh, and uh, I've interviewed Malcolm already on the show. It was a great episode. And so welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be chatting with you. So I have a, a baby out of left field, but uh, your podcast is called Based Camp. I have assumed that when I first heard the term based, I thought it came from based in tradition. But it turns out oh. that that nobody uh, uh, that that is actually a field of controversy over where the term "base" comes from. Uh, seeing as it's yeah. in the podcast, I would love to hear your uh, take on that controversy. Um, the first time someone defined "based" to me, it was like someone who was unabashedly comfortable with their beliefs um, and just like did not care about what anyone else thought or said. So, like Carl Pilkington is the definition of "based." Um, but um, then I heard someone who was super progressive defined based as conservative. <laughs> They're like, all right. So then I, I came to understand that this word has baggage and connotations beyond what I was aware of. So, I mean, you could say that we're we're both. Um, we love to be unapologetic and we also are conservative leaning, mostly because we're not super like progressive minions. And uh, so both work. Uh, how does it feel like to be in New York City? Because uh, you guys are based there, which is a strong progressive thing. And I imagine that you guys kind of like hang around in a lot of different circles. And I know from my own experience in growing up in San Francisco, that it can be quite uh, just uh, challenging to have a uh, relaxed conversation when when uh, when these types of conversations are, are being had. What, what, what's your take on that? Oh, yeah, I also grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and it was kind of like growing up in a cult, right? Um, there, there were just actually, you know, coming out of it was really crazy because I, I literally had, like, had moments where I was like, "Wait, are, am I allowed to think that? Am I allowed to have an opinion on this that isn't the officially okay opinion?" And it was so freeing, um, but also kind of mind bending um, to realize that you may have like held certain beliefs for most of your life because you literally didn't feel like you were allowed to have other beliefs. It's wild. Um, in New York city. Uh, so Malcolm and I actually live in a, like a stone farmhouse in Pennsylvania. That's where we are now. Oh, we okay. go to New York city to host dinner parties um, because no one goes to Pennsylvania. So we go to them. Um, but when we host those dinner parties, we select super heterodox people. So our dinner parties are very, um, they're full of very controversial people. Um, but we have had people send us emails after because we, we try to have a balanced, um, mixture of people. You know, we have super progressive people, we have super conservative people, we have super weird people, whatever. Um, and we have had people email us in the past with like, you know, sort of criticisms of us having too many conservative people there or them, feeling triggered by things that were discussed. Um, so that's interesting. We, we've only heard that from progressive people. We've never heard that from any of our conservative guests, but um, I think that's part of progressive culture is that like being challenged or uncomfortable is not okay. It's kind of like an attack on you. So I guess that's understandable if unfortunate. Yeah, that's the, been the hardest thing for me because it, it's been a relatively recent uh, kind of coming out yes. of that, cult, and it is it is a it is definitely a cult, and that's what it felt like. To me. But, uh, it was very harsh too, because because it, it the, I could feel the I could feel the 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 initial parts once Donald Trump got elected in 2016. Uh, that was <laughs> when 
when I was like, okay, my worldview is wrong. Like something just happened outside of my worldview. I still was programmed to hate him. I hated him uh, for all the various reasons and stuff like that. And then 2018 became much more clear. And then 2020 was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm the one, uh, my beliefs are the ones that are wrong here. Like it's not, it's not the world. The world isn't the thing that is a problem. It's my, my, the way that I grew up and, and something's wrong with that. And so then I started to question it pretty uh, uh, directly uh, online because that was the way, the only way that I could communicate with most of my, my, uh, my general relationships. And, um, and then it just started to come back as like, whoa, like, what are you doing? You can't, you can't have those beliefs. Like you can't actually question those things and that you questioning it is violence towards, towards me. And, and it, and it was, it was so interesting. It was very freeing, but I'm still in it basically as well. But that's the hardest part for me to get around it because there was the, the, the stated belief is that it's sort of like from the liberal tradition, everything's possible. We can talk about everything, but the set of possible things to, that we can talk about it just keeps on getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's accurate. Or well, I mean, there's the the you grow up thinking that um, progressive culture is the most liberal, freeing, non-restrictive, non-oppressive culture, um, and then if you start looking outside it, you start realizing that it's not. Like as as Malcolm likes to say the problem is that they'll they're um they're very equal opportunity and victims like they they will you know basically take anyone as a convert but then once you are a convert you have to agree with the mainstream opinions on gender on the environment on um you know social justice on how we feel about our emotions you know and trauma and so you're not really allowed to be different aside from like costumes <laughs> And maybe official holidays, um, but nothing that really matters. Whereas when you ask like a very conservative Orthodox Jew or Christian or uh, Mormon or whatever about their views, you're, you're going to get very different answers. Whereas if you ask a, like a Reform Jew and a super progressive Christian, like you know, Unitarian Universalist or something like that, you're going to get very similar answers um, on those issues. So yeah, it's a, it, it is really weird to grow up in a culture where you think there's maximum freedom and then you discover there isn't. <laughs> and and I, I don't want any of this to mean that I don't have really good relationships with people who are progressive and liberal and like I'm I'm very totally. to it. I just don't feel the same thing from it. But that being said, I do feel the same thing from it from a certain kind of uh, liberal or or and you say that you try to keep it balanced in your dinner parties and that there are heterodox liberals that w w like and uh, liberal isn't the right word I, like because it's I guess left wing might be the right right word um uh, uh and so what do you think defines a heterodox uh, uh left wing person who's still able to be in community with uh, people who they don't share the views with like what defines that person? Um, so we would define that person as someone who's like actually left-leaning or actually very, we'll say classical libertarian, where they maybe are like, you know, techno-optimists, they're very like socially, like, you know, whatever, like they're they're polyamorous, they're um, you know, very like non non-traditional, non-conservative. Um, but at the same time, they're not restrictive around issues like trauma or like, uh, I think that the issue with what now has become progressivism is that like even associating with certain people or ideas is considered a, like a thought crime. Um, for example, Malcolm and I are going to be speaking at a conference in December called the Natalism Conference, um, that we haven't organized, um, and there are some people there going there who are quite controversial. And on Twitter, a bunch of people have been like, you know, don't you realize who else is going there? How could you possibly be at this? And we're like, hold on. Like, since when did going to an event where there are people who hold different views than you, like, since when did that become a crime? And also, like, if you actually care about changing people's minds or like getting to a more nuanced truth, isn't the only way you do that by interacting with people who hold different views from you. And so it really disturbs me and, and what I see as being like the bad form of progressivism or, or like where progressivism lost the plot is where suddenly it wasn't okay to engage with certain ideas. Like it was just literally like, we don't talk with these people. We freeze them out. Um, we will not consider their ideas. 
um, even if just to better understand them to change their minds. Um, David McRaney, for example, um, he, he's an author who wrote You Are Not So Smart. One of his more recent books is called How Minds Change. And he talks about the research that people have done on how to actually change minds. Um, and you don't do that by... <laughs> I mean, first off, you're not going to get even close to changing someone's mind if you freeze them out. Like if you're not engaging with them, there is nothing happening, you know, just <laughs> nothing. Um, uh, but also like just kind of yelling at someone like, you know, you could you could think of like Westboro Baptist Church, right? Like they're not changing anyone's mind either. So just like shaming someone isn't really going to do anything. So what does um, is really getting close to someone, building rapport as a human, like building a human to human connection. Also then understanding what that person cares about in life and then framing the problem in terms of the things they care about, um, because that's how you can get them to think slightly differently about an issue. Um, and, you know, the, <laughs> none of these issues that that I think really scare many progressives or, or, or movements that scare them um, are going to be addressed by them freezing them out. So, yeah, I think it's a, a toxic view to think, how you know, how dare you associate with these people that we disagree with. <laughs> Um, you know, and we don't we don't agree with um a lot of their views either, but that's why we want it like that those are the ones to talk to. Also, like no one gets a lot out of a conversation when you what just if, agree with someone, right? Like our favorite friends are ones who like actually are really different from us who kind of think that we're monsters and you know are kind of horrified by what we do, um, and vice versa, because then our conversations are so interesting. And it's and it's that it's that being able to be uh, in conversation with somebody who you the views of which you think are monstrous, but yes. automatically say, well, I'm I just I'm not going to hear that anymore. Uh, one of my first, uh, I've got a great story, and I don't think I've told it on on this podcast before. So uh, I was in 2020. I was in San Francisco. I was the shelter in place order that happened. And I was like, I'm not going to do this in San Francisco. Uh, and so I bought a van and I moved the van into the woods. Uh, and oh, wow. Uh, imagine this like very, like very recent person who's, who's changed their mind over a lot of different things, but still not very vocal about it. Um, and, and all of a sudden this big thing happens where all of a sudden there was a strong, strong break. Uh, and so like, where does my group go? I can't be in San Francisco anymore because none of them will ever actually happen out. I still kind of look at conservatives as these like far out people. So I moved into the one part of California, which is extremely conservative, but also has a large uh, degree of what I would call post hippies. Um, uh, like, mm. uh, uh, th this would be interesting to talk with you about, about like once that it's, it's the QAnon and all the other stuff, the, the kind of wild the militia people you were in that part of California. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, but, but it yeah. was mixed with hippies mixed yeah. with back to the earth. They're, they're like super interspersed. It's weird. It's like this weird mixture of like boomer post hippie, but like now has like a huge cache of guns and like kind of forming an informal militia and like kind of getting ready for you know an armed conflict and civil war you know what i mean it's a and pot growers and psychedelic yeah. and it's just like an amalgamation and so one of my best friends who was at like who i wouldn't have hung out with before was uh, kind of like a post hippie but also kind of polyamorous also kind <laughs> of like conservative in a way but also like uh uh he was he was jewish but he also had found jesus uh but the best part this about is so california oh my god <laughs> very california best part about it was he was also a flat earther he also is a flat oh, earther. of course uh, and so uh and so one of the most fascinating uh parts about that was to be like okay well here's somebody like who I completely disagree with on this fundamental principle about like the reality and the world and everything like that. And yet I can still like completely enjoy our conversations and actually learn a lot from our conversations because specifically because of that, because it attacked me so much. It attacked my sense of ego like so much. Um, but yeah, I just, I really, but it, that, that and I've also traveled a lot and I know that you guys have traveled a lot and done business in a lot of different cultures. And that same thing happens. Like I know that in Brazil, um, a lot of like 30% of the population is, is, is a religion called spiritualist. Uh, so they, you know, they believe that they can have seances with uh, spirits uh, and like, it's a huge part of the religion. And if you talk to people and get to know them, that's like their, their worldview is, is saying that they're able to talk with spirits in the moment that you're talking with them and will often like murmur things uh, about it. So I find it wildly interesting. Oh yeah, <laughs> that is really interesting. Yeah, when I, I mean, I, the interesting thing about the California subset that you described, there, I feel like there's a deep historical tradition for that, like sort of coming out of the Scots Irish, um, with this like deep suspicion of authority, 
um, and, and decision to like find truth internally and from within. I mean, the whole flat earther movement is about that, right? It's about having a crisis of, um, of faith and belief in authority and, and really going to first principles with everything. Um, plus a lot of confirmation bias, right? Like, and it's, there are problems with the movement, but I also see it as like a, a sort of deep, um, American tradition. Um, and it's funny cause it seems like flat earther stuff and like, sort of like finding Jesus and all these other things like that they shouldn't go together but it definitely to me is is pretty consistently this find your own truth anti-authoritarian bent you know that you can like be polyamorous and kind of hippie-ish but then have all these guns like totally makes sense for this one like weird traditional subculture that can be traced back mostly to like the Scots-Irish crazy backcountry immigrants from you know the borderlands of Scotland and Ireland that's super interesting. I want to figure out more about that. The 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 finding your own truth is really interesting. Um, it reminds me there are two people who I who I pay attention who who say that we're entering into a world that's sort of like what's called a patchwork age. Uh, uh, they both use, use the term independently. One is uh, the founder of Urbit. Um, speaking of which, uh-huh. another person who who you can't like you can't like Urbit without liking him, apparently. Um, that's what I'm saying. The progressive belief is that it's not what's actually true. Um, uh, and so like the, the, he's got one patchwork age and then an astrologer uh, is another one who uses the same patchwork age. Um, and basically saying that the ba- the big camp is over, that that this Hegelian dialectic of right to left to right to left to right to left until we find the truth is totally going away. And it's just going to mm. be all niche like people, you know, whether that's Orthodox Jews having like eight kids or or like um, or flat earthers all getting a bunch of guns and hanging out on their own property. And it'll like our our, our collective consciousness is going to splinter um, and go into a Cambrian explosion of maybe like a lot of different species as well. Like maybe these will all like come out as different human species. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, we call that person like internally because um, we're not familiar with this particular person's philosophy, techno feudalism. Um, where we feel like this is also going to be driven by the rise of AI um, and that over time there's going to be this collective crisis of reality and who is real and one of my reading that was actually written by a human and we expect there to start to be communities that rise over sort of like human-based trust networks like you and I have met in person at this place we convene at this place like once a year or once every quarter or like for some kind of you know annual gathering or something like we know we know we're real we might we might start using apps where you have to like verify humanhood um to be a part of them and so people are going to build trust networks around people and essentially like um build little feudal empires around personalities and and schools of thought. Um, and we also think that that's going to happen in a soft post-collapse world. And by that, we mean a world in which demographic collapse is taking place and city infrastructure is falling apart, government stability is going down. Now, this is not something that's going to happen like immediately, but you know, our kids and grandkids are going to be facing issues along these lines. And we definitely think that this um, sort of techno-feudalism which is different from the network state because we do think it's a lot more geographically based. Um, it is going to be a big part of how reality is navigated, but also how the world is navigated. Um, so when we look at a post-collapse society, um, and this is mostly driven by demographic collapse, but you know other things too, you know, shifting globalism and international relations, it's going to look more like South Africa looks now, um, where you know it's not, it's not road warrior. It is. It is compounds that are fortified and then there are fortifications within the fortifications and private security forces, rolling blackouts, you know, sort of like high rates of crime and rape and and everything else in between the secure compounds. Um, and people are going to start building these little feudal empires to be to be safe, but also to build, you know, small economies that work and trade with each other. Um, so it's fully what we expect in the future. And it's it is going to be patchworky. Um, it'll be interesting. Um, and we we do think it could lead to a really interesting acceleration of cultural evolution when rather than having necessarily the continuation of this global monoculture that's right now really pervading every major city, every um, bastion of power, um, a lot of different 
pretty unique, distinct cultures. You know, like over here you have like the Desnats, over here you have the Orthodox Jews, over here you have like really weird technophilic futurists and transhumanists and, you know, how do they trade with each other? Um, what are their different ideologies? Um, how do they riff off each other and compete with each other? And it could be a really interesting future. <laughs> uh, uh, and so, you know, that's like the physical manifestation of it, like cities, uh, geographics, all these different things. And then there is that network state type of thing, which like linked minds together through technology. Where do right. you, the picture that you see, where does that come in? Where does the linked minds come in? Like, um, through technology, if at all? I mean, we, we definitely like, we agree roughly with the network state concept. We just think that it underplays areas of geographic concentration because in the end, you know, people are going to need to live somewhere with somewhat secure infrastructure, um, jobs, families, people to interact with in person, dating markets, like mm -hmm. the... It, it is, it is too easy to just kind of ignore the fact that humans still need to live somewhere in the future. And this is going to become even more important as demographic collapse plays out over the years, because many cities will not be able to sustain themselves as their populations collapse. And I think what we're going to end up seeing is smaller communities will start to form sort of like gated communities and really large gated communities that are built freshly. Um, but then also some cities, like probably New York City, Los Angeles, um, London, they will become perhaps even more populated, whereas every other sort of mid small city is going to become like Detroit, you know, mostly abandoned. Um, because once you lose a critical mass of citizens in a city, you're not going to be able to keep up infrastructure, you can't keep up the tax base, the pensions, it just all collapses. So we're going to see sort of fewer, but more mega mega cities, um, and then a bunch of sort of independent, like colonies that are um, showing up as an alternative to that as uh you know a lot of smaller towns and cities also see their infrastructure in infrastructure crumble like i can't remember the name of the the movement or nonprofit i think it's called strong cities or strong towns are you familiar with it where they're like talking about how um at least in the united states many smaller towns and cities that were developed by developers you know like people were like let's build a housing development um in many cases the real estate development companies front loaded the development of all the sewers, all the roads. Um, the problem is that like they paid for this once and these things need to be kept up. And these cities don't really have the budget to pay to like redo these sewer systems when they start crumbling. Um, so there's sort of this ticking time bomb in many cities where they're just not going to be able to keep up the infrastructure that they already have. So again, like as we start to see a, a a crumbling of the pyramid system that allows us to keep funding growth and to keep cities in place. Um, we're going to see more towns and cities become um, uninhabitable. And that's, uh, it's uh, sounds counterintuitive from where we are right now, particularly inside of cities, uh, large cities like New York or, or Los Angeles that are becoming more and more expensive that are not like, it's just not able, you're not able to live in the center. If you, if you're part of the middle or lower class, move like far, far out, you can live far out, further and further out. Um, and so a lot of those people are moving to those mid-tier cities. But I think what you're saying is that this is actually even on a longer timeline that like once the Democrat, what is the, what is the, I know you and Malcolm have both done a lot of study on, on the natalism movement. And um, what is the timeline we're looking at where that demographic collapse starts to really like be noticeable in our everyday life? Because it doesn't feel noticeable right now. I mean, it does right. kind of, but like, where does it, where, when does that start happening? So the, a lot of that depends on a lot of factors. Um, it's not going to show up as soon in the United States because we're going to continue to attract human fodder through immigration. And that's mm -hmm. able to prop up our population um, pretty significantly over time, as long as we remain somewhat open to immigration um, and a good opportunity for jobs and wealth. Um, other nations that struggle more to attract immigrants and that also struggle to maintain their populations are going to see this collapse much earlier. Um, but, you know, already nations like Japan and South Korea are opening, you know, an unprecedented numbers of, of spots to immigrants because they're already starting to see like, OK, let's we're going to have to do something about this. Um, so it's, it's it is going to vary significantly from one place to another. And it's hard for us to tell because people are only just now figuring out this is going to be a problem and starting to experiment with different methods, either to boost their own population or to really boost immigration. 
um, to work it out. Um, the problem is that immigration is only going to work for so long. You know, I mean, people thought, oh, well, I mean, at least Africa is going to like keep growing forever. But it looks like ultimately their populations are declining, like their birth rates are declining faster than people expected. And we want that to happen, right? Because basically that's that's a it correlates really highly with increased GDP, with increased development and, and quality of life for people in those nations. So like that's a good thing. Um, but it also means that, you know, the the extent to which we can continue to rely on immigration. Um, is limited. Also, it's kind of a questionable tactic, right? Because you're you're basically brain draining these other nations, taking their best and brightest when the best and brightest could be, you know, investing in the the development of their own nations. Um, <laughs> it's it's complicated, but yeah, um, it's hard to say. I'm, but yeah, we're worried. I mean, like South Korea is really screwed. Um, I, I mean, I expect to see. Although you know, it's interesting for South Korea, right? Because Seoul is such an, a huge mega city for them. Where I feel like, you know, at least it other areas may atrophy and Seoul may last a little bit longer. So it's it's hard to say. Like I think the same with Japan, right? Like a lot of the outlying small towns in Japan are, are gonna like shrivel up first. And it's not gonna be as noticeable because any tourist who's traveling to Nagoya or Osaka or Kyoto is gonna go and like the cities are con- continuing to be packed by people, right? So yeah. Uh <laughs> Again, this is not something that we're really going to see that much in our lifetimes, but definitely our children and for sure our grandchildren and great-grandchildren are going to see this in a a much more meaningful way. Uh, And I can bring my personal example of being inside of Buenos Aires, Argentina, um, which is such an interesting example uh, because, you know, it's like the it's like a European capital of South America. It's highly European, like even today, the huge culture, huge dance, huge food. Like there's there was a huge waves of Italian and European immigration to southern Brazil. And I've spent a lot of time in southern Brazil. Um, mm. and southern Brazil is not at all like Buenos Aires does not have this kind of Europe, deep European culture, but it mm. essentially never recovered from the Great Depression. Um, and so and uh, so it's this beautiful city that's built off of this great energy that still exists today. Uh, there's not actually too much crime like the like the Brazilians. There's pickpocketing and other stuff like that. Um, but it is. But Argentina in general is going through a giant emigration. I saw one data point that one million people are leaving the whole the the. Oh my. Yeah, the, the in his country of like forty five million. Uh, some of those that that number might be not be the best number because of uh, uh, it might just include tourism. But that's how a lot of Argentines actually go leave forever is they go on tourism and then they never come back. And it's not like they. Yeah. No. I, we we run a travel business. We see that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we've got this this beautiful city. It's a huge city. I think it's like 12 million people, something like that. Um, and uh, infrastructure is probably going to start crumbling, I imagine, particularly given yeah. the hyperinflation. And I, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on hyperinflation, where the U.S. goes, because I'm partly here to discover what is what goes on during hyperinflation based on, you know, back when I was in California, everything was inflating to the degree that it was, you know, making life pretty challenging. Um what are your thoughts on on this new era where we're going into of a really strong U.S. led world order, but is now like the it feels like the peak has been reached uh, and we're now on this debt spiral that's, tri- you know, we're going to we're going to be spending about a trillion dollars on just servicing the debt, I believe, if, if what I read yeah. is, is wh- where, where do you think we're going and what's going to happen here? it's a hot mess but at the same time because we're the world reserve currency and there aren't like much better options like for a while during the pandemic we were like wow you know like is this nation or that nation actually going to be able to supplant the u.s dollar like because people were taking you know they were taking shots (laughs) um but yeah it just doesn't seem like that's going to be the case that you know in the end when it comes at least to nationally backed currencies the u.s dollar is going to sort of be that de facto thing um that you know for now relatively speaking, we're in a fairly secure position. Um, So we aren't as worried now about hyperinflation as we used to be. That said, um, encountering, like we've, we've done a ton of work with clients in Venezuela. We've seen firsthand, like, man, how bad it gets um, with hyperinflation and with currency um, instability. And um, it has made us really bullish about Bitcoin. You know, like I think most people discussing Bitcoin, um, and other cryptocurrencies in the U.S., it's like, oh, you know, like 
this is an investment. I believe in the philosophy, but we know a decent number of Venezuelan families and um, and people who are like, nope, that was just like, this was a currency that they had to use because it was the way they got their money out of the nation. It's it's the way that they were able to maintain some stability, weirdly, because I mean, Bitcoin is hardly stable um, with with their money. And, you know, it is, it is a really, crypto is amazing in that way. Um, so we, we do see a really meaningful place for crypto. It's annoying that there's so, still so many problems with it, obviously, and that it's being used as a speculative asset, but it, it has made us quite bullish on like the long-term place for it, despite all the complications it has. Uh, and that is very re- uh, relevant for Argentina right now, because the, mm. another reason why I'm down here is to, is so imagine that we do hyperinflate in the U.S., uh, it might take a hundred years. It might take two hundred years. But you know, at some point, the U.S. Yeah. dollar doing today is 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 going to have an effect. Uh, and so, what is going on in Argentina right now is that you have hyperinflating uh, Argentine peso, but you also have something that didn't exist in Weimar Germany, which is the euro dollars uh, that are just like spread everywhere. So the there's a huge black market that I can go and exchange my my U.S. dollars, physical dollars, or electronic dollars and get pesos at the black market rate, rate rather than the formal exchange rate. Um, and interesting. And so there's all the prices are totally, if I were just taking money out of the, out of the, out of the ATM, I would be, uh, it would be a much more expensive place to live, but I'm, I've got my system where I can get us dollar, I'm sorry, get pesos delivered to my door because I take out USDT on Coinbase and then I send them USDT and then they deliver uh, stacks of money to my house. Um, which is which is totally wild. Uh, but the whole thing is based off of the liquidity of the US dollar. And so Argentine middle class is able to save money um, by uh, by um, uh, by taking their salary and then immediately buying US dollars through this black market and then putting those yeah. putting those US dollars inside their mattress. So like there's just like millions of dollars of US dollars like on in people's mattresses all over Buenos Aires. Uh, the younger digital natives who are all earning dollar, who are either already earning dollars remotely um, or know how to navigate the crypto world, all are like highly, highly incentivized to use it. And there's actually a big Bitcoin conference coming up uh, this weekend um, because Argentina is, is is like ground zero for this type of European Western mentality um, that uh, that is also digital native, that is also using crypto. And it's like one of the first times in my life where crypto is actually like serving a, a daily usage that I need to use, um, which is super interesting. Yeah, yeah it is. I, and it's so like it's it's crazy how you see this outside the United States where like in the United States, it's all ideological and identity based and like kind of in, in that sense, kind of lame. Um, you know, and it makes it makes me less confident about it. But then you go to these other places where like it is a necessity of life. It is how people make ends meet. Um, and that makes me much more excited. I mean, it's 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 uh, frustrating that you have to do that, but it's also, you know, helpful information, useful data. And are you noticing that like, you know, I don't want to say like, you know, but like basically non-technologically savvy people are using it too? Yeah. Or is it mostly just like tech people? It's not. It's definitely not only tech people. So, so uh, here I'll give you a, an actual example. Um, I've got a, a cook who's who's gonna um, who's gonna make me my deals. I, I guess I guess she would be kind of considered um, a, a digital native. But she, I asked her whether she used this one specific cryptocurrency. She's like, yeah, I'll, I'll accept that. Um, so it's nice. a place to ask, ask, ask people, and they will actually accept crypto. But I would say it's not necessarily only digital natives. I think there are a lot of people here. Who, as long as they're like somewhat able to use a computer, are actually using this um, technology. And you see signs everywhere for crypto moneda, crypto moneda, crypto moneda. That's yeah, and that's that's really interesting, right? Because in the U.S., for the longest time, like I first started getting interested in and involved with crypto stuff in like 2012, and it was like only reserved for the most technologically savvy, educated, technical people, right? Like it was not an everyone kind of thing. And then you go to Latin America, probably some areas in Africa as well. And it's like, nope, this is just a, you know, I guess it's one of those things where like, depending on a nation's infrastructure, things just leapfrog. Um, 
And it is so interesting how um, in places like when when we lived much more in, in Lima, Peru, we were always really surprised by like how much easier certain things were. Like we could just immediately pay all our bills through our bank account directly. Um, or like that just doesn't really work as easily in the US for us at least. Um, and, and a bunch of other things were just like so much more efficient and technologically like smooth. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there may be a bit of a leapfrogging effect, but it is quite interesting and it gives us hope. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and definitely, uh, uh, like some things are easier and then some things are ridiculously harder, uh, yeah. with the bureaucracy, the Latin American bureaucracy, uh, do not I, like, I, I feel like there's a cyberpunk novel that needs to be written about, uh, um, basically, uh, AI arms race. So uh, entrepreneurs start uh, implementing AI in order to get around bureaucracy, but then the bureaucracy, because its job isn't actually to provide services, its job is to prevent people from using services, then starts to implement yeah. their own AI to start combating against the AI. <laughs> that'd, that'd be a fun, uh, a fun novel to write. Um, yeah, I'm Malcolm and I are actually, um, I mean, we're running me, but like I would say we're running for state house in Pennsylvania this coming year not you know we, we our odds of winning are not great um because we're in a more progressive leaning district but like one of the top platforms that we just want to raise awareness about and also like fight for is replacing government bureaucracy with AI um and the extent to which you can actually save huge amounts of money and improve services by just eliminating bureaucracy is deeply depressing, but also incredibly encouraging if you can make it happen. Um, and just like every time we work with government agencies through one of our businesses or just personally, like you encounter it, right? You're like, wait, all these people here are making life harder for everyone just to justify their own department, to to, to protect their job security, um, and we just need to get rid of, it. I mean, it's, it's bad. Well, and, and, and it, 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 it like has to happen particularly here in Argentina. It's like, but that's the, that's the, like, but that's the one way they guarantee votes is by giving these subsidies and stuff like that. So, so democracy itself may not be able to work in that environment because then all of those people who are then pissed off, uh, about losing their job are then yeah. going to vote whoever did that out of office. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's another reason why we're like, I don't know if we'll be able to actually get elected because, um, you know, like that plus school choice are like some of our top platform points. And, you know, teachers unions give, you know, prodigiously to progressive candidates to just protect their jobs. And I mean, a huge amount of public spending for public schools in the United States is basically just on teacher salaries. Um, That's that's where all the money's disappearing. It's not improving student outcomes. It's not helping students. Um, I, I wouldn't say the teachers are particularly happy either. So it, it is a complete mess. Um, but it's it's definitely something that Malcolm writes about at length in the Pragmatist Guide to Governance, um, that once an organization or bureaucracy gets large enough, uh, these sort of cancerous growths form within it that exist basically just to justify their existence. They're, they're there to grow like any tumor. Um, and not to actually serve a purpose, which is disturbing. <laughs> mm. um, and it, it goes back to our earlier conversation about the sort of arc of history, because it feels like the bureaucracies are, are you know, from this Enlightenment era. I mean, Rome had bureaucracies as well, uh, but, you know, they didn't have, have it down to a science. And then the, 19, the 1600s and 1700s happened and then the rise of the nation state but it's all based off of this agricultural model. And it feels like we're just going to have like a radical, radical shift. Although what you're saying that it might be a more of a soft shift uh, as demographic collapse happens. But it seems like most of the models that we we grew up with aren't going to be applicable to the world that is very soon upon us. Um, what, what and like what what's your take on that? And what's particularly what's your take on how AI is going to change that? Um. You know, it's hard to say, like, I mean, AI is not going to take things over because it's better um, as, as long as sclerotic bureaucracies try to maintain their power, right? I mean, the the, the decision makers in place are going to do anything they can to defend their power, their positions, their jobs. Um, so there's there's nothing they can really do to change that. Um, sorry. And and. So I, I think there's going to be many communities in which these massive inefficient bureaucracies 
continue on for a very long time. But I think that they will ultimately be outcompeted by other communities, other businesses um, that manage to become much more efficient. And we are starting to see this slowly taking place, even with the uh, organizations in the US. I mean, Elon Musk laid off what, like 71% of Twitter staff, um, because what were they actually doing? And I mean, I'm sure like, uh, this is something that like gets to me every time I drive by like a large corporate campus. And I just like, look at these giant sprawling offices and ask myself, what, what are they doing uh, in there? Um, then well, so, we, we've met so many people too, who are like ultimately well-meaning, competent people who are like, yep, I have this job at this large corporation and literally I do nothing. Um, and if, you know, of course it's like, it's smart for them to take that job, like do it, you know, if someone's going to pay you crap tons of money to do nothing and you have free time to do whatever it is that you want, that you actually care about, do it. Um, but I, I feel like in the end, those organizations that cannot overcome these, these cancerous growths of completely useless dead weight are not going to last, uh, when they are competing with organizations that do leverage AI and really light models. Um, this could create a lot of instability. Um, Malcolm says that like ultimately AI frees the the bourgeoisie from the proletariat. There will be no more dependency on the proletariat for work, even necessarily a market. Um, so we could end up seeing this huge bifurcation of society back to techno-feudalism where you have sort of those with all the power and money um, living in their own separate communities, gated off, completely isolated, and then you have sort of everyone else kind of left to fend for themselves. Um, it's it's hard to say exactly how it's going to play out, but it it isn't necessarily going to play out in the direction of universal basic income and everyone having what they want. Um, that's not necessarily a great solution. I was just rereading Mark Andreessen's, um, what is it called, like a techno-optimist manifesto. Um, and, you know, he talks about the idea of universal basic income and just kind of giving people um, all the money and resources they need to live lives is sort of creating human zoos. And that's not how humans thrive. You know, humans need to work for something. Humans need to have purpose. And, you know, I, I agree that that's, it's really important to the human condition. And a lot of mental health problems we see today is that people really have no more struggle and they have no more, um, reason to fight for anything, reason to care about anything, because there's nothing that difficult in their lives. Um, this is sort of unrelated, but as pernatalists, we constantly bump up against the antinatalist movement. Um, and pretty much all the antinatalists we've encountered um, are people who grew up in actually pretty privileged backgrounds, you know, not people who, who struggled throughout their lives, but rather people who um, didn't really have that many challenges. And there's just not really you know, it, it's hard for them to, they sort of become uh, nihilistic and depressed and all this, this privilege and um, ennui is, is getting to them. And so then they hook up to this mimetic super virus that says like, here's the struggle, go struggle against it. Uh, and, and then that's where they find their struggle, but it's ultimately empty because it's not really based in anything true. Uh, from my well, Yeah. And, and more toxic, it tells them that the most important thing is to be happy. And you should be happy and you should not suffer. And this is what you should obsess over when like, that's totally missing the point. The The only reason we feel happiness is suffering is that those are, those are signals. Those are like signs that, that you're like bumping up against a wall and need to course correct um, or that you're moving in a good direction. That They're not inherently valuable, at least by Malcolm's and my value set. Um, they are just signs that have helped humans get to where they are today. Um, so, you know, the more important thing is to have a deep set of values, uh, an objective function, as we say, you know, something or a couple of things that you want to maximize with your life, um, and the conviction to follow through on those things. And believe it or not, when you are, you know, successfully pursuing the things that you value, you feel great. And so actually, if you really do care about happiness, the best thing to do is to forget about happiness, not be afraid of suffering and focus on things that matter to you. Um, but that is not what mainstream culture advocates for. Okay, so going back to there was a question I had about. Um, oh yeah, so so we've we've got this AI, we've got this AI that will help some organizations outperform the other organizations, um, and uh, then but then there's one organization that doesn't need to compete, and that's the government, 
But in the United States, there there is a sort of competition layer between the the decentralized uh, federal system. So like states are competing against each other. Do you see yeah. any states or even any regions within states that do start to use this? What you talked about earlier with these new um, new uh, groups. Uh, maybe if they're, you know, if, if it's like Wyoming keeps on coming to mind, like maybe Wyoming or something, if there, if there's some movement inside of Wyoming that has this type of thing behind it and they can essentially outcompete, do you think there is like a, a chance left for this United States system to actually come back and, and, and maybe, um, uh, uh, implement a new form of governance based off of this this system that we've had for 300 years that can maybe help us get out of our funk. We want to believe there is. Um, that's that's why we're trying to start getting involved with politics in Pennsylvania. And we would love for Pennsylvania in particular because it's it is a large state. is It is a somewhat purple state, and we we argue it's fairly innovative, and the people in it are super reasonable. It's 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 a really great place that it could become a hub of AI driven government that we could draw an in investment for that, that we could, you know, create a lot of case studies for it. But, you know, this is changing government is really, really hard. And, you know, the, the U S government has never been larger, you know, it, it has just gotten so bad um, that I, I really don't know. I cannot say with confidence that this can be amended. I really hope it can. Um, there may be some fun, like, I mean, in the end, demographic collapse will be a pretty significant forcing function because the tax base just isn't going to be there. Who knows where AI could like sort of swing in as a, a deus ex machina to address that problem. Um, but I would give no better than 50-50 odds if I'm being really optimistic that the even parts of the U.S. government could be rehabilitated. I mean, when we look at annual campaign spending alone every year, you know, in every state, it's just skyrocketing. Um, and for what? Uh, the more we look into the way that campaign funds are spent, the more disturbed we are by how stupidly they're being spent, you know, and the, the, the amount of wastage, the amount of, I guess, ossification um, and, and thoughtlessness that's, that's involved, you know, very little focus on ROI, very little thoughtfulness about what's actually effective. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, do you do you see signs of hope? I do. I mean, well, like it was really interesting yesterday to talk to Malcolm. We were talking about corporate governance, but then we somehow made our way into um, the original founding of the of the country. Uh, and mm. he had mentioned something about George Washington and how George Washington had actually tried to uh, not have the party system, uh, and but mm -hmm. with. 10 years party system was there and, and it's been and now as we see today like this giant party system is is uh is there but i do fundamentally believe that the american people have something special to them that that has never existed before uh in our institutions up until maybe 2000 uh up until 2000 were were, were somewhat strong but you could already see it in the 90s that the, the the giant giant administration that you're talking about uh so I do see hope, but maybe on a hundred year timeline, like, like mm. uh, not, maybe not necessarily within my lifetime, uh, do I see hope at the national level. Uh, but in terms of the state level, I'm actually pretty hopeful. Uh, I did a, I was, I was, I, I was tracking um, COVID around the world. Uh, Argentina, where I currently am, had the longest lockdown um, and just like horrific thing. But within the United States, like we were one of the only countries in the world that that was able to have different, you know, ways of doing it. Um, all the state governments, most of the state governments, except for Florida, I think, but even Florida went went into a little bit of the crazy crazy stuff as well. Um, but in terms of like the the our our system worked better than the other systems because it was so decentralized. Um, yeah. Uh, that yeah, Utah, Florida, they were like, and it was amazing going from state to state and seeing those differences. Like, you know, you'd go to one state and you'd be like, well, this is like some kind of dystopian, freaky place. And you go to the other state and it's like, what pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> Even though I'm like, in Florida, everyone had COVID. It was weird. In Utah, like no one had COVID, but in Florida, everyone had COVID. <laughs> it, it, within California too, the craziest thing was I had gone to a bunch of states. I, I Right as the shelter in place had happened, I think like a month later, I took a uh, drive to Colorado um, and went through Utah and it's exactly like you said it was just like wide open like just like nothing had happened uh, came no back masks, no nothing nothing 
it was just totally wide open. And, uh, and, uh, and then the strangest thing was going from Northern California to LA and then LA was just exactly like Northern California. And then you go to OC and all of a sudden it's just like nothing, absolutely nothing. You go to San Diego, people are at restaurants, people are at restaurants without masks. The only people wearing masks are people who are waiting on the tables, which was always the strangest part about the, the, the whole thing. <laughs> like the the direct direct uh, uh paradox in, in the fact that the the wait the wait staff is is uh it has to be masked um but nobody else's um yeah but, uh, yeah very strange yeah, yeah. I and mean, when we've had you know we had uh friends who did um masking research like the the uh, mask efficacy research at major universities who found that like you know the kinds of masks that we were wearing as civilians you know non n95 masks totally not effective like there was really no point in wearing them. Um, they weren't helping anyone. Um, but that like after a certain point, no one could really spread that message because too many governments had gone too far into it. And, you know, the amount of lost faith that would cause, which I mean, still has happened anyway. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's disturbing. One thing that gives me hope about this though, is that, um, you know, awareness is being raised about, you know, the, the, what people are calling the blob or the deep state, you know, just like this, this huge amount of bureaucratic waste and bloat um, that like Vivek Ramaswamy is proposing as part of his platform, like eliminating what 75% of the federal government. I'm like, yeah, sign me up for that. That is great. Like if someone gets one thing done, if they're able to do that, that is, that is enough for me. I'm happy. Well, and that's the way out of that's the way out of the Argentine future because the the reason why Argentina is the way it is is because they're subsidizing gas. They're they've employing like seventy percent of the population as part of the state, like and they oh, can't it anymore. And they're printing money to 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 keep all those things. And at some point, it breaks. And when yeah. it breaks, rough. And then you know the U.S. is headed in that direction. Like we've got a much bigger tax base, we've got a much bigger economy. But that's like that's where we're headed unless you can you can cut down on costs and. And uh, and even then, we still have this giant legacy debt that needs to be paid off. Um, yeah, it'll happen in the end. You know, no, nothing lasts forever. Things change, and that's one thing we can depend upon. So I think there's a lot of hope. Sadly, I have to I have to jump in two minutes um, to another podcast. Um, but so, well, thank you so much for coming. And uh, how can people find out more about what you're working on specifically right now? Number one, go to Based Camp on YouTube. It is the podcast Malcolm and I do together. We have a ton of fun with it. We're actually about to interview um, Stephen Shaw, who did the documentary Birth Gap. Um, and he'll, his interview will be up soon. So we have great people on, lots of fun conversations. Um, and uh, yeah, I would love for people to check that out. And uh, I really had fun talking with you. We should yeah, do this again. Absolutely. I would love to. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Stuart Alsop, I-I-I. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or iTunes for every weekly episode that I publish on Monday mornings. Hope you have a great day.